This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 8, The Pentuppy Nine. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Incredible Stories Podcast. I'm Josh Virila, and with me is... Oh, wait a minute. Zane? There is no Zane. Unfortunately, dear listener, Zane can no longer do the podcast. So, it'll just be me, solo. Lucky you. I don't know how long I will be just me, but for the foreseeable future... It is me solo. But let's not let that stop us. I will be changing the format up a bit, but hopefully we can learn something new together and find it adequately pleasant and surprisingly not so bad. So with that, let's get to the story. This week, we are talking about the Pentuppy 9. Skipping the Pentuppy 1 through 8 and going straight to the Pentuppy Nine. So, what the Pentuppy Nine is, is a group of Australian Aborigines who in 1984 stepped out of the Australian desert and into history as the last nomads of Australia anyways. Most likely. You see, this was most likely the last group of indigenous peoples in Australia, who were living an untouched hunter-gatherer life, and when they emerged from the Australian Gibson Desert, they created quite the buzz, quite the buzz indeed. But before I get into them, let's dig a little bit deeper into Australia. G'day, mates! Now, Australia is home to the oldest continuous culture in the world, and that being the Australian Aborigines. It is thought that they first arrived on the continent about 50,000 years ago. Maybe even before that, I've heard some estimates up to 75,000 years. But let's just stick with 50,000 years at least. So I think that's a good number everyone's, for the most part, agreed on. Now think of that. For 50,000 years, these people lived isolated and independent from any other place on Earth providing them an opportunity to develop their unique culture for that long. But let's compare some old things, shall we? Because 50,000 years might be kind of hard for people to wrap their minds around. So, the oldest purse in the world was found in Germany, and is thought to be about 4,500 years old. And it's decorated with dog's teeth, tray chic. Now, the oldest longbow that was found... Uh, was found in Denmark, and it's only 8,000 years old. That's uh, getting up there on the weaponry scale. And the oldest known map, you might ask? Well, it's 14,000 years old. And it's a, a small stone that fits in your hand, and it shows mountains and rivers and animals, and was found in northern Spain. Now, if we go back far enough, there are plenty of old stone tools that predate Aboriginal culture, but damn guys, them's old. So what is Aboriginal culture anyways? Well, there were many different tribes from northern Australia on the coast to south in Tasmania. 
slight differences in language from region to region, but generally they were all part of the longest continuous religion in the world. And, and that religion being known as Dreamtime, which would make for a fantastic episode all of in itself, but that's for another time perhaps. Aborigines didn't have a written language or build monolithic monuments and didn't farm animals or crops. There were no cities, so the term civilization isn't really applicable here. But they had a culture of art from paintings to songs and dance and stories that are still told. Incredible stories, in fact. The first Australians never developed an iron or bronze age or pottery. Somewhat of a Stone Age culture, although stone technology progressed differently here than in the rest of the world. So the terms Paleolithic and Neolithic aren't used when referring to Aboriginal culture in Australia. Now, they made stone tools, chipping rocks to sharpen them, and then used those rocks to sharpen wooden weapons and tools. And, and this was practiced up until the 1960s-ish, in fact. And this speaks to the remoteness of Australia. In fact, Europeans didn't reach the middle of this arid continent until the 1880s. Many Aborigines were completely unchanged until the 1940s. And the last nomadic families were removed from the deserts and into settlements in the 1960s. And this is where the Pintuppy Nine come in. In the 1950s, the British started testing blue streak missiles over the western desert region of Australia. Now, these missiles were a sort of proto-space rocket thing, right? They, they were being developed to travel intercontinentally, but also send stuff up into space. So the Australian government, being good blokes, said, Hey now, we can't have any Aborigines living in the area on account of missiles being fired here. That's my Australian accent. That's as good as it's gonna get, folks, so <laughs> just have to appreciate it. So the government said, we can't have people living in these areas, which is understandable. So their solution was to find all the nomads still living in the desert and move them into settlements on the outskirts of this test area. So many trips were made by the government to move people from the desert, as you can imagine. This is quite a task, given the remoteness and the amount of people to keep tabs on. But in this region, lived the Pintuppy clan. This group of Aborigines made up part of the Western Desert Culture Group in Australia. And these people were still living their traditional lifestyle at this time. But once they were moved into the communities, they were introduced to, and many of them adopted, the new European culture. Although maybe re-education camps might be a better term for the forced assimilation, similar to America's history with Native American culture, in this sense, and not to get too into the treatment of the Aboriginal people, but you know, children were taken from their parents and then sent to government or religious organizations for foster care and integration. And, and, and with the government resettling Aboriginal peoples between 1962 and 1966, there are bound to be a few tragedies. In fact, one sixth of those living in a mixed settlement containing Pintuppi and other Aboriginal groups died of various diseases, Oregon Trail style. So diseases like hepatitis, meningitis, etc. So this was a lot going on, and a lot of people and a lot of moving parts. 
Guess what else happened? The government failed to account for nine people. The Pentuppi Nine. So, the Pentuppi Nine was a small family group composed of, and <laughs> you know my track record with pronouncing names uh, that I am not familiar with from other cultures, but uh, bear with me, I'll try to push through these. So the group was a family family group comprised of Nanyanyu and Papala Nanyanyu. <laughs> I'm going to try that one more time. Papala Nanyanyu. Okay, close, close as I'm going to get, folks. So those two individuals were wives and sisters. So their husband, who isn't in the story because he had died at some point, but I couldn't find exactly where... But they were, they were married to the same guy, and they were both sisters. So it was them two and their children. They had four brothers: uh, Warlimperinga, Walala, Tamlik, and Piyiti, and three sisters: Yalti, Yakolchi, and Takaria, Takaria, Takaria. <laughs> All right, that's that's uh, I that's uh, that's as good as I'm getting. Sorry, sorry again. I apologize to all the Aboriginal peoples and the traditional pronunciation of your names. I really butchered that. So, but anyways, these this family they were ranging from their early to late teens, and the mothers were in their late thirties. Some people would call these people a lost tribe, but the Pentuppi Nine didn't like to be referred to like that. They like to more so think of themselves as just being separated from their relatives, you know, the other members of the Pentuppi clan, which is much larger. But no matter how you look at it, these individuals were now all alone in a vast, isolated region of the Australian desert. One of the younger sisters remembers seeing planes that would fly over them, which scared them because they thought the planes were devils. This made them hide in trees until the coast was clear, and then they would come down when they saw no more planes. Although isolated, they did from time to time encounter signs of civilization, such as the remains of one of those devils, uh, a crashed plane. So when they found a crashed plane or other signs of civilization, they would forge about it and see what was inside. And this one particular time, when they found the crashed plane, they went inside and they found some rope. Now, they didn't really know what rope was because they didn't have that. But they decided, that, hey, we can use this thing. So they used the rope, tied it around their waist, and they used it to hang goannas on. And goannas are really big lizards, which they would eat along with rabbits and other things they would find. But yeah, think of like, it's like a monitor type of lizard. They're pretty big. I I wouldn't want one scurrying around the house, that's for sure. Now, their day-to-day life included roaming the area around Lake McKay in the Gibson Desert, looking for watering holes. Now, Lake McKay is a 1,300-plus square miles salt lake. Interestingly, in Dreamtime lore, this lake is said to have been made after a large bushfire wrecked the land and created this lake. So it's kind of neat. There's lots of interesting stories in Dreamtime, and I I recommend picking up some books about it if you're curious about Aboriginal culture, because there's a lot of cool things in there. 
But now imagine living in a desert, no modern clothing or tools, and having to trek in the heat each day. You know, you're in the desert, so you have to walk in the heat of the desert um, just to find watering holes. You know, you, you got you to gotta drink. A human can only last about three days without water. So your quest for survival is always on the forefront. Not really a lot of time for leisure. So in many cases, these precious resources would be 25 miles apart, sometimes more. So think about it. you got to walk that far in the desert, and you have no clothes, no shoes. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a big task. Now, on top of the water, you also have to find food. And not just for one or two people, but for nine people. And you're in a desert. <laughs> so, you know, you do the math. That's a lot of walking around looking for things. Now, some days, in fact, the Pentumpi Nine didn't find water. But their knowledge of the traditional ways kept them alive. So to supplement the days that they didn't have water, they would hunt and drink the blood of the goannas, those giant lizards I told you about. So this would give them what their body needed to survive each day. Now, finding water is pretty hard. Now, imagine having to drink down some blood to just sustain yourself. Are, are you able to do that? I think I could do it, but God, that's, uh, that's pretty gross. But, you know, those are the traditional ways on how people survived in that region. So it's a good thing to know. If you're ever stuck in the desert and you don't have any water, if you can catch a giant lizard, drink its blood. Or any other animal you can find. Now the children might have been aware of the settlements from stories that their father told them of, of weird animals. And uh, you know, in one such encounter the kids recalled their father describing to them what was most likely a sheep. But he never would take the kids to go see these fanciful creatures. So I don't know why he would do that. He's probably scared that they were going to get round up because they didn't know, you know what was going to go on. And that that was kind of like his way to keep them uh, isolated from anything that they didn't know. So in the 60s and 70s, the government allowed for the Aboriginal people to move back to their ancestral lands, which sounds great. But the Pentuppi, whose community of the community was called Kiwi Rukura, and that was not constructed until 1984. So the Pentuppi was the larger group the clan family members and they couldn't move back to the desert because their community settlement was not built yet and the reason for that is you got to remember this part of australia is very vast and isolated so it took some time for their settlement to be set up properly the pentuppi settlement which housed between 60 and 80 of the pentuppi clan is the most remote community in all of australia it's a full two days drive from Alice Springs, which is, you know, the, the biggest or the largest populated area to that settlement. And its current population is 28,000. So kind of small. But eventually the Pentuppi moved into the settlement near their ancestral lands. And, and this is the Pentuppi clan group. Now, remember, this clan was a large related family group, and the Pentuppi Nine still had close family members that remembered them and knew that they were not with them during the initial roundup nearly 20 years earlier. They were a distant memory, a curiosity to the larger Pentuppi clan who always wondered what happened to them. 
Now, one of the Pintumpi Nine, Warlimbimpringa, who was the eldest brother, he remembers stumbling across the other people of his clan one day. He accounts just having speared a kangaroo when he smelled human excrement and smoke from a campsite several kilometers away. So he moved toward the camp cautiously, and when he was right on top of the campers, he coughed. Now, this really scared the men. They were running around all crazy and screaming, because uh, put yourselves in their shoes, uh, the campers. Uh, you're in the middle of the outback. I mean, there's nothing out there. You're isolated, and you don't expect to see anybody for miles and miles and miles. And, and then all of a sudden, two naked men with spears come out of nowhere and tell you, this is my grandfather's land. Now, Warling Paringa thought about spearing these trespassers until they offered him some water because their camp had running water. Ha- however, the two men named, the, the father's name was Pinta Pinta, nailed it, and his son, Matthew, also nailed it were still uh, scared, and, and the son, the younger, had a shotgun, and he fired it into the air, which frightened everyone of both parties, the, the campers and the, the two Pintuppy Nine, and everyone scattered and, and, and ran ran opposite directions. So, Warling Paringa and his brother uh, went back to the family members, and the two men who were at the camp just floored it and hightailed out of there. They went back to the community, uh, uh, and this is the community of Kirakura, and that was nearly 28 miles away. And they did this on, by some accounts, they had a flat tire, but they were scared, and they just floored it out of there. So Pinta Pinta and his son make it back to their camp, the Kirakura, 28 miles away. And they start telling the people that they met two naked men, and that they approached the camp, and they asked them for water, and at first, they thought the two naked men were evil spirits. Now, in Aboriginal culture, you know, things have spirits, inanimate objects have spirits. It's prevalent in, in their, their religion and dream time, uh, of dream time and, and, and their beliefs. So, so they thought they were evil spirits, which is probably why the youngest son, you know, the son Matthew, fired a shotgun in the, way, in the air to get away because he was scared that these evil spirits were going to get them. Well... This caused quite a buzz in the community. But the next day, after everyone had time to digest what had happened, uh, most of the people realized that Pinta Pinta and his son probably encountered their long-lost relatives because they remembered they were still in the bush or they were not accounted for when everybody got round up. So it was decided to go and find them and bring their family members some clothes and maybe help them out, bring them back to where they were. What followed was a three-day tracking through the bush. Okay, so there's this one white guy with the Pintuppy clan, and his name is Charlie McMahon. Nailed it again! Man, I'm on a roll right now. But uh, he was with the community helping them set it up properly, and he wrote in his diary that... Tomorrow, we will find the two men's tracks. And maybe, tonight, the last of the ancient people will spend their last night free of the modern world. However, I quite prepared to turn back and won't feel in any way daunted 
if they stay out here as they are. Crikey! So, so this is a pretty poignant statement. Um, you, you gotta imagine that they were on the precipice of a bittersweet moment. On the one hand, they are about to find and reunite nine people who have been cut off and lost to their family clan for 20 years. And on the other hand, the last of the traditionally living aborigines would be absorbed by modern society, for better or for worse. But with it, a piece of Australian history would be no more. And to some extent, a touch of humanity loses that piece of our wild soul. But back to the tracking. So the searchers are expecting to find two men. When they actually run into Yukotulji and her sister Yalti, uh, the following proved to be a frightening experience for both of them. So imagine, imagine this. These two sisters are walking around the bush doing their day-to-day stuff. When all of a sudden, some men in automobiles show up. You've got nowhere to go. Now imagine you and your sister are grabbed by men and thrown into a car. This is what happened. So now their mother, who was also nearby, hid in some tall grasses. And she wasn't seen by the men who, who grabbed her daughters. But I can only imagine her fear at this point. The strange men show up and steal your kids and drive off. Ugh, that's every parent's nightmare, right? So now the girls, you called Chi-Gi, you called Chi-Gi, <laughs> I keep trying and I keep failing. Uh, her and Yalti are in a car for the first time ever. They didn't know what was going on. And the car was zooming across the desert. So now at this point, the men had given the girls the shirts off their backs so they could cover up. That's very gentlemanly of them and polite. But the girls were more concerned with covering their faces, as, again, they had no concept of traveling in vehicles, and the speed of things zooming around them made them dizzy and scared. So, I mean, you can probably put yourselves in their shoes. It'd be the same if, like, maybe you, for the first time ever, got on an alien spaceship, and it just started going light speed. It'd probably trip you out. You didn't know what was going on. So, same kind of thing with them. Totally foreign mode of transportation to them put you in it, and you start speeding faster than you've ever imagined you could move, and it's frightening. Kind of like that Willy Wonka scene in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with the boat, you know? Now, their brother, Warlin Peringa, who was the young man that the campers initially encountered, tracked the car down, and there was a confrontation. I mean, that makes sense. He had just seen his sister stolen, and as the leader of the Pintuppy Nine, because he's the eldest male, so he's here with the rest of the Pentuppy Nine. He tracks down the vehicle and he has a spear out ready to poke holes in the people when his mother realized what was going on and told him to stop. Now, when your mama tells you to stop, you better stop. So he stops. So, so the mom says, uh, these men are your brothers. Leave them alone. And I'm paraphrasing here. But essentially, she recognized this as her family clan. So... The men explained who they were, and everyone calmed down. So, Warlin Pringa lowered his spear and started to name the relatives um, he was seeing and, uh, and the ones that he could remember, because he did have some memory of, of them from when he was younger. So, it started out pretty traumatizing, but quickly proved to be a good experience for them. 
Imagine being welcomed by people who speak your language and can tell you what's going on with assimilation before even meeting a white person. Much easier for the Pentuppy Nine in this sense than it had been for their larger family group many years earlier. So they had some laughs for sure, but upon meeting the first white guy ever in McMahon, Warlin Pringa describes his amusement thusly. We were sitting down. I saw a white fella. He was so white. This bloke is white. This one, I thought. He is white, this bloke. So McMahon didn't want to force the Pentuppy Nine to join the community, but he knew it wouldn't be long before they were seduced by the modern world. And the thing that seemingly held the most persuasive weight that was enticing the Pentuppy Nine to join the community was... Sugar. There was no concept of sugar to them. They loved the sweetness of this. Uh, although this, the sweetness reminded them of the Kulan Kulan flower. And I tried looking this up, guys, but I couldn't find any reference of it. So I, I, think, it, I think it might be some sort of indigenous uh, flower, but it goes by a different name in Australia. If I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But the decision to join the community was to be made by the head of the Pentumpi Nine, which was Warlin Pringa as the eldest male. Um, so his decision to live in the Kirakura community would change their life forever. But although romantic in notion, would you stay in the bush, dear listeners? Would you want to walk every day in the desert heat and search for food and water, never knowing what you'll need to do to survive? Or would the call of modern luxuries like running water and ample food supply and clothing and sugar and not to be overlooked, family, would would all this call you to stay? Ultimately, the Pentumpi Nine did decide to stay in the community. They were tired of the daily grind and fret that traditional survival brought, and they were tired of being alone. And although Sugar might have played a big role in opening their eyes to what modern society might hold, I believe it was the bond of family that truly made them stay in modern society. Forming bonds with long-lost nieces and nephews, having a large family group that was there to take care of you and teach you, must have been comforting to them. People, after all, are social creatures, and that desire to be with your clan is a strong pull. But I have to also believe if the Pentuppy Nine were the Pentuppy 100... The decision to stay in the bush or to move into modern society might have went a different way. So now, it took some time to adjust to modern life. Uh, You know, the concept of shopping and money was a foreign thing to them. In fact, Yalti says when they first were getting adjusted, family members would give them money, but they didn't know what to do with it, so they would just bury it in the ground. So that's that's kind of humorous, you know. Hey, here's $10. Let's go dig a hole in the backyard and put it in there. So the the new assortment of food was also a puzzle to them. For instance, after cooking a potato on the fire and finding that it tasted good when cooked this way, they thought this is how you treat many of the new foods. So Yalti found that oranges aren't meant to be cooked this way. She burned the crap out of some oranges. (laughs) Uh, Also a little bit humorous, uh, but... You know, just just the 
daily bumps of, of learning how to live in, in modern society and integrating into something that you're unfamiliar with. So the Pentumpy Nine had a good sense of humor about it, and this helped them to integrate. However, one brother, Pyreti, disliked this life and returned to the bush by himself after just two months. Now, some say he couldn't handle the stress of adjusting or the conflict that is sure to happen in large communities. The bickering was a commonplace thing in the Kirakura community. But part of me thinks, after living a traditional way of life for so long, then being confronted with all that is modern society, you must feel a bit out of place. A man trapped between two times. It's hard to blame someone for returning to the solitude of bush life. Now, the remaining Pentuppi 9, or I guess the Pentuppi 8, uh, don't regret their decision to join modern society, even though they have become unhealthy from the diet and uh, are more prone to illnesses such as colds, and, and each of the siblings have had their issues with alcohol and drug abuse throughout the years. Uh, although the two mothers have died, most of the siblings still live in the Kirakura and Kintor communities, and all of them have become artists. In fact, Orlimpringa, Walala, and Tamlik are known internationally as the, and bear with me, the Tijapalatarjari brothers. I will most definitely put that in the show notes for you to look up. But check out their artwork, it's pretty cool. So, you know, that's the story of the Pentuppi Nine, and... You know, I mentioned it in the story. It's 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 really cool, like the romantic notion of of living that simple life and 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 just you know the hunter gatherer lifestyle. It, everyone puts it in their mind, like oh yeah, just get away from modern society and it, just you know hunt all day and do what you want to do. But that's a hard life, you know, having to constantly worry where your food and water are coming from and. Taking care of other people, if, if you have a small family unit, is it's got to be a very stressful uh, way to live. And for those reasons, I can't blame them for integrating into modern society, even though it does bring a lot of negative aspects with it, you know, with the obesity rates and the illnesses that uh, they got more prone to. I, I think they, they enjoy that, you know, sense of community and, you know, they have access to all the modern things that you and I do. It's, it's hard to give up once you see that. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's a really honorable thing is to leave behind something of, of that traditional lifestyle and going forward into, you know, a society, for better or for worse, but you're in it. But, you know, while they're in modern society, they can pass along their knowledge of their traditional way of life through their paintings, telling stories, you know, doing interviews. Just that way, that knowledge is never lost. It's always passed down. So it's helpful for people. So as you know, this is a little different format. So I won't be doing the uh, three haikus for you guys, but I will leave with you just one, one haiku. And, you know, I encourage you guys to send me yours because I like hearing them. So here's my haiku to leave you with. Lost in the desert. Australian life long ago. Nine reunited. Very simple. Very succinct. As is the haiku. 
So that's the show for the week, guys. I hope you enjoyed it in the new format. Um, you know, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. And check out the website, IncrediblestoriesPodcast.com. Send us an email from the site. And if you prefer, follow us on iTunes and Stitcher. And uh, that's all for this time, guys. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh. No Zane. And remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word. Good.